For our time of study in the Word this morning, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be picking up this morning in our series through the book of Titus. And as we continue in our series through this little epistle in the New Testament, we come this morning to Titus chapter 1 verse 10. And my goal this morning is to cover verses 10 through 16. And the title of the message is The Need for Good Doctrinal Hygiene. The Need for Good Doctrinal Hygiene. There's been a lot of talk in recent days about hygiene, and we're going to be talking about that this morning. We will actually see the Greek word for hygiene twice in our passage today. Our world today has reacted with the most extreme of measures in order to slow the spread of the coronavirus. Schools have been closed, nations have closed their borders, sporting events have been canceled, and sports seasons have been put on hold. Many churches in our country, once again, are not meeting today. Our own governor here in California has ordered all of us to stay home as much as possible. Uh, bottles of Purell, are gone from uh, store shelves. Federal agents have surrounded the house of, a, of an infected person who had refused to self-isolate. Why have all of these kinds of steps been taken? Well, because there is an invisible virus out there that may infect you and may make you sick, and it could be lethal. We have all seen lists of things that we need to do in order to stay safe and to avoid being infected. We are told that if we follow these guidelines, not only will we make it less likely that we get sick, but we will also make it less likely that an infection will spread to others in our community. And all of these developments that we are living with today set us up to appreciate what the Apostle Paul does in Titus chapter 1. In Titus chapter 1, Paul is telling Titus the steps that he must take to mitigate the spread of false teaching that has already made inroads into the congregation of the church of Crete. And when you read 1 Timothy, which was written around the same time as Titus was written, you realize that an outbreak of the same false teaching was plaguing the church at Ephesus as well. And in Titus chapter 1, Paul is explaining to Titus the measures that he must take in order to protect the church from people who carry the infection of deadly doctrine. In the passage that we looked at three weeks ago, the Apostle Paul tells Titus something that he absolutely must do, and that is that Titus must appoint godly elders in every city on the island of Crete. Elders, he says, who, verse 9, are holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to exhort both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. You'll be interested to know that the Greek word translated sound is the word we get our English word hygiene from. So to use this particular English word, 
Titus needs to find godly men who hold fast to the faithful word in order that they might exhort in hygienic doctrine. In other words, doctrine that is healthy and which makes healthy. And such elders must refute persons who seek to contradict that sound doctrine. Then notice how verse 10 starts with the word for, meaning that Paul is now explaining the prevalent danger which makes it necessary for Titus to put in place godly elders who are holding fast to the faithful word and exhorting with hygienic or sound doctrine and refuting those who contradict that doctrine. Listen to what Paul says in these verses, beginning in verse 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid game. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. There are obviously a number of good reasons why a church needs godly elders to hold fast to the faithful word and exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. And we can identify three of those reasons in our passage today. So the way we're going to break down our study of our text today is we will observe three reasons that the church needs godly elders who exhort and refute with sound doctrine. And the first of these reasons is, number one, because such ministry will have a silencing effect on teachers of error. Once again, observe what Paul says, starting in verse 10. He says, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. We have here a number of descriptions of these teachers of error that Paul is concerned about. First of all, we're told that they are rebellious, meaning that they rebel against the teaching handed down by the apostles. Secondly, we're told that they are empty talkers, meaning that what they teach may sound sophisticated and spiritual, but it can't generate any genuine transformation of life that is pleasing to God. And thirdly, we're told that they are deceivers. Not only are their mouths empty of anything truly substantive, but they speak untruths and make promises of salvation that their teaching can never deliver on. With the end result being 
that they lead people away from the truth and into error. And Paul says that there are many of such men on the island of Crete. This announcement from Paul ought to sober all of us. If there were many such men on the island of Crete in Paul's day, think about how many empty talking deceivers there are in our world today. And nowadays, these deceivers have things like television and social media to get their false doctrines to you, even bringing them directly into your home and into your children's bedrooms. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, Paul speaks of these very kinds of people and describes them as those who creep into houses. And modern technology has given purveyors of false doctrines unprecedented capabilities to creep into houses through TVs and laptops and smartphones. And as Christians, we need to be aware that there are many rebellious, deceiving, empty-talking teachers out there who are seeking to lead God's people astray. As to the false teachers that Paul was concerned about on the island of Crete, Paul's biggest concern is, as he says in the text, especially or namely those of the circumcision. In other words, the Jews. Whatever the false teaching was that Paul was most concerned about here, it was being taught by Jews. We will learn more about them as this text unfolds. But these were men who added to the revelation of Scripture, and they also added extra regulations onto Scripture as well, forbidding the eating of certain foods out of concern for ritual purity before God. And Paul says that such men must be silenced. And when he says that, he's not talking about performing a mafia-like hit on these men or silencing them by physical force. He's talking about silencing them in the life of the congregation by not giving them platform to speak to the congregation. He's also talking about silencing them through refutation, leaving them without anything to say in return. And beyond that, Paul wants elders in the church to teach their congregations God's truth so convincingly, showing them the rightness and the beauty of sound doctrine that the congregants receiving that teaching have no more desire to hear what false teachers have to say, to where they now, as members of the congregation, know what false doctrine is, they want nothing to do with it anymore, causing the voice of these deceiving teachers to fall silent in their midst. Regarding these teachers that Paul wants silenced in the church, Paul describes them in verse 11 as teaching things they should not teach. Literally, the Greek is teaching things they must not teach. As for their motives, Paul says that they are teaching error for the sake of sordid gain. Somehow, these men had found a way to profit from their teaching, and Paul says that they had a profit motive for teaching the errors they taught. The sordid gain that they were after no doubt involved money, but it also involved their quest for social leverage and power over people as well. As to the effect of their teaching, Paul says that 
they are upsetting whole families. And the Greek word translated upsetting is the very word used to speak of Jesus overturning the tables of the money changers in the temple in John chapter 2, verse 15. And this is what these false teachers were doing to whole families or households in the church of Crete, turning them upside down in their doctrine, bringing division between members of families that are now divided and their doctrinal beliefs. And in some cases, they were probably leading whole households astray into false doctrine. This is why these men must be silenced because their teaching is wreaking havoc on families. And let's not forget Paul's point. The church needs godly elders who are holding fast to the faithful word so that they, the elders, can be exhorting the congregation with sound doctrine and so that they as elders can be refuting the lies and silencing the mouths of false teachers who are doing the kind of damage that Paul is describing here. There's another reason the church needs godly elders who exhort and refute with sound doctrine. Number two, because such Ministry can make people sound in the faith. Observe what Paul says next, describing these Cretan teachers of error and the Cretans also that they were leading astray. Paul says in verse 12, One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts lazy gluttons. Lest you think that Paul is guilty of stereotyping or profiling Cretans in an inappropriate way, the quote that he gives here is from a Cretan man himself. That's why Paul says one of themselves, a prophet of their own, has said this. This man's name who spoke these words was Epimenides, an ancient Greek writer who lived around 600 B.C., Interestingly, other ancient writers say similar kinds of things about the people of Crete. In fact, the people of Crete were so notorious for shady ethics that the word Crete had become a verb meaning to deceive someone. So we're not surprised to see Paul quoting here from a Cretan man himself who says that the Cretans are always liars. If a Cretan said anything to you, you were safe in assuming that they were lying to you unless clear and convincing evidence showed otherwise. And even if they spoke truth to you, you had good reason to wonder if they had a deceptive agenda. They were also, by reputation here, evil beasts who often lived more like animals following their instincts rather than as image bearers of God. And they weren't just living as animals, but as evil animals, bad animals, animals you wanted to avoid because they would do you harm. They were also by reputation, not just gluttons, but lazy gluttons. Their God was their belly and they were lazy as well. Now, Paul could have disagreed with this assessment of the Cretans, but he doesn't. 
Paul has been on the island of Crete and he has spent time there and experienced the Cretans firsthand. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul says in verse 13, this testimony is true. The Cretans really are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And if it troubles you that Paul would agree with this dark assessment of the Cretans, you should take some time to read the rest of the Bible and see what else the Bible says about all of mankind, not just people on the island of Crete. For example, in Romans chapter 3, Paul quotes from the Old Testament with agreement saying, beginning in verse 10 of Romans chapter 3, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of serpents is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is Paul's inspired assessment, guys, of the whole human race. And it's just as dark as what he says about the Cretans here in Titus chapter 1. Also, if Paul's assessment of the Cretans bothers you, listen to how Paul characterizes his own former life in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, including himself in the same camp as Titus and the Cretan Christians, Paul says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. So it's clear here that Paul saw himself and Titus and the Cretans as being the same. But notice how he speaks of himself and Titus and Cretans who had come to faith in Jesus. He says in Titus 3.3, we once were foolish ourselves. We were once this way, but we are not this way anymore because Christ has changed us. This is why Paul is able to say what he says next in Titus chapter 1, verse 13. Paul could have said next, because the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, therefore leave them alone because they're unredeemable. But Paul doesn't say this in the second half of verse 13. Instead, he says to Titus, look at what he says, for this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. This is an amazing instruction from Paul. To reprove is to point out error with the intent of bringing conviction to the conscience. And the Greek word translated severely means to do this reproving in a crisp and decisive way without hemming and hawing and waffling the way people do nowadays. What sinners need is decisive reproof, 
delivered with confidence and saturated with truth. And why does Paul tell Titus to reprove such people? With this outcome in mind, he says, so that they may be sound in the faith. These are astonishingly hopeful words from Paul here. Evidently, in Paul's theology, people who are right now liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons can be transformed and be made sound or healthy or hygienic in the faith. People who are right now teaching terrible things for sordid gain can become sound in the Christian faith. People who are right now being led astray by these false teachers can become sound in the faith. And Titus is to rebuke such people precisely because there is hope for them and the rebuke might serve to bring them to repentance. Think about Paul's own testimony and you see how true this is. Paul himself once taught things that were contrary to Christianity. He once blasphemed Christ and tried to get others to blaspheme Christ as well. Yet, Christ confronted him on the road to Damascus. Christ knocked him to the ground, literally, and ultimately saved him and made him a man who is now sound in the faith. And it's this very same Paul who is telling Titus and the elders he chooses to reprove sinners severely so that they may be sound in the faith. Speaking about this passage, William Barclay, the commentator, says, and I quote, Few passages so demonstrate the divine optimism of the Christian evangelist who refuses to regard any man as hopeless. The greater the evil, the greater the challenge. It is the Christian conviction that there is no sin too great for the grace of Jesus Christ to conquer, unquote. And we see that amazing optimism on display here in this text. Given the typical view that people had of those who lived on the island of Crete, one might wonder why Paul would even want to plant a church there. Given the error of these deceptive teachers, one might expect Paul to just write them off and consider them hopeless. Given some in the church who have allowed themselves to be led astray by these false teachers, one might think that Paul would be quick to write them off too. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul tells Titus to reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. Paul actually seemed to think that if Titus and his fellow elders would engage in this kind of ministry of reproof to these individuals, their ministry will in some cases have its intended effect and be used of God to turn them from the error of their way and transform them into people who are sound or hygienic in the Christian faith. By the way, we also observe in this passage the positive power of reproof when it is properly delivered in a timely way and how it can serve as a means of change in the life of a person. Some people nowadays try to influence others for Christ by always being nice and never delivering a sharp reproof. But we learn in verse 13 here that severe reproof 
can actually be a tool used of God to help people do a 180 and become, by the grace of God, sound or healthy in the faith. Anyway, according to verse 14, part of what it means to be sound in the faith involves, look at verse 14, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. It's here where we learn the specific nature of some of the error of these false teachers. And that is that they were paying attention to Jewish myths and the commandments of men who turn away from the truth of God's revelation and make up their own revelation. One of the things I noticed as we preach through the book of Genesis is how Jewish tradition has added many stories to the text of Genesis. When there's a passage in Genesis that gives very few details, Jewish tradition adds details that satisfy the curiosity of readers who want more information than what the scripture reveals. And some of these stories are quite fanciful. You get the sense that Jewish readers were not content with what the text of Scripture revealed. They wanted more. And sure enough, there were teachers who were happy to provide stories to fill in the gaps of Genesis. Just one quick example. The book of Genesis does not tell us how Esau died, but it does tell us how Jacob died and how Jacob was taken to Canaan to be buried in the cave of Machpelah, where Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah were also buried. And we studied the story of that journey to Canaan and the burial of Jacob in the final chapter of the book of Genesis. Well, not a lot of details are given there, but Jewish tradition adds some details. Jewish tradition tells us the story of how Esau met up with Jacob's sons at the cave of Machpelah in Canaan and tried to prevent them from burying Jacob's body in that cave, claiming that he was the one who had the right to be buried in that cave with his ancestors. And during the argument that followed, one of Jacob's grandsons took a club and killed Esau with that club. And he hit Esau with that club in the head so hard that it separated Esau's head from his body. And Esau's head went rolling into the cave of Machpelah. And that, boys and girls, is how it came to be that Esau's head was buried in the cave of Machpelah. This is just one example of the kind of stories that would supposedly fill in the gaps of Scripture. And in the end, such stories took on more prominence than they should have and often would receive even more attention than the Scripture itself. And the Jews, in addition to that, didn't just make these additions to the narrative of the Old Testament Scriptures, but also to its commands. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, God said to his people, You shall not add to the words I am commanding you. Yet the Jews did exactly that and added to the commands of Scripture beyond what God spoke in the Old Testament. And they put those commands, those extra commands, upon the backs of the Jewish people. And Paul calls these commandments the commandments of men, 
because they were not from God. Yet people began to live by these commandments of men, thinking that they were commandments of God, and they thought that they were obeying God in the process. There is always a tendency in the human heart of every age to add to God's commands and to impose those commands on other people. And we are often all too happy to allow ourselves to be oppressed by such commands. We're all too happy to allow others to impose additional commands on us and to weigh us down with restrictions that are not from God, especially if the keeping of those commands makes us feel more spiritual than others. And this is why Paul is calling upon Titus to appoint godly men to serve as elders in the church so that these godly men could hold fast to the faithful word without adding anything else to it and exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict in order that some people upon hearing such teaching might be saved and might become sound in the faith and stop paying attention to myths and the commandments of men that are not found anywhere in scripture, but rather pay attention to what is told and what is commanded in scripture alone. There's a third reason that the church needs godly elders who exhort and refute with sound doctrine. Number three, because such ministry helps to clarify who is who. Think about it. There are ultimately two groups of people in the world, those who belong to God and those who don't. And one of the ways for Titus and his elders to determine who is who is by holding fast to the faithful word and exhorting with sound doctrine and refuting those who contradict. If an elder faithfully does that, then he will eventually be able to discern who is who by how they respond. Listen to what Paul says beginning in verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. You will notice that two types of people are identified in verse 15. Those who are the pure and those who are defiled and unbelieving. And how do you know who is who? Well, that's revealed in this passage. In verse 15, Paul says, To the pure, all things are pure. What does he mean by that? Well, the all things that Paul is referring to here includes every creature of God that is to be eaten for food. And we would draw that from what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4, where he is addressing a similar error to what he's encountering here and seeking to address in the book of Titus. But when Paul says all things... He's clearly speaking of more than just food. As one commentator says, this expression includes still more, namely the word of God itself. In other words, if someone is made pure through Christ, then he will not worry about any animal meat making him ceremonially unclean before God. And he will certainly cherish the faithful word and deem it to be pure and worthy of reception and belief. 
Putting it all together, we can paraphrase Paul's point here by saying, to the truly pure, all things taught by Christ and his apostle are pure, including all foods which Christ and his apostles have declared now as clean. Now, what is Christ and his apostles teaching on the subject of food, especially in light of the fact that in the Old Testament, there were certain foods that were declared to be clean and some foods declared to be unclean. What did Christ and his apostles teach regarding this? Well, in Mark chapter 7, verses 18 through 19, Jesus is speaking to those who were worried about being made unclean by eating food that the Old Testament declares as unclean. And Jesus says to them in verse 18, Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him, because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is eliminated? And then Mark adds this commentary for us on what Jesus is doing here by what he says, saying, listen to what Mark says at the end of the verse, thus he, Jesus, declared all foods clean. Jesus is now instituted by these words, a new era in which all foods are clean. In Acts 10, Peter sees a vision of the sky opened up and a certain object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him saying, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. And again, a voice came to him a second time saying, What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. In addition to this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, Paul himself taught that people are following doctrines of demons who advocate abstaining from foods, which God, Paul says, has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Paul then says, for everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. So this is the teaching of Jesus and the apostles with regard to food. There is no longer a division between clean and unclean. All foods are declared clean before God. Yet, evidently, there were people in Paul's day who ignored this body of teaching and tried to resurrect the eating regulations from the Old Testament and sought to impose those regulations on people's consciences. And in the theology of these false teachers, you don't just need to believe in Jesus in order to be ceremonially clean and pure before God. You need to believe in Jesus plus abstain from unclean foods like shrimp and pork and ham in order to be truly pure before God. Imagine that. Imagine 
having to abstain from bacon in order to be pure before God. That's what they were imposing upon these people's consciences. By the way, this kind of teaching shows up in various forms even today as people seek to resurrect the Old Testament regulations regarding food and impose those regulations on Christians in the church today. Ellen White, for example, the founding prophetess of Seventh-day Adventism, had a vision, she claimed, in 1863, in which God supposedly gave instructions for her followers to give up eating pork. Over time, that prohibition came to include other meats that the Old Testament deemed unclean, and this prohibition was imposed upon Seventh-day Adventists, even to this day. But this kind of thinking shows up elsewhere in the church also. For example, several years ago, a pastor of a church of 20,000 people in the state of Texas preached on a Sunday morning and taught his congregation about eating. And among the things that this preacher said to his congregation were these words, and I want to read them to you. He said, and I quote, let's talk a moment about pork, ham, bacon, and pepperoni. These are some of the things the scripture tells us we should not eat. God knows what's best for us. And back in the Bible days, the pig was considered unclean. It was never considered a source of food. On the other hand, the animals God says are okay for us to eat are things like cow, lamb, deer, and buffalo. Something else the Bible tells us to stay away from is any kind of shellfish, shrimp, crabs, clams, oysters, and lobsters, unquote. The pastor who spoke those words to his congregation is Joel Osteen, and what he is teaching completely flies in the face of the teaching of Christ who pronounced all foods to be clean and also in violation of the teaching of the Apostle Paul, who taught the same. Be very wary of any attempt that anyone makes in the name of God to put the eating regulations of the Old Testament upon you and seeks to bind your conscience with those regulations. Paul responds to all this stuff by saying in verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure. In other words, if someone is truly made pure through Jesus Christ, there is no food that can make him ceremonially unclean or impure before God. And the scripture itself, which teaches this truth, will be deemed as pure by such an individual. And then in a most deliciously ironic twist, Paul continues and says, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. In other words, Paul is saying you'll be able to know who the defiled people are because they are the ones who are busy declaring particular foods unclean and telling people not to eat them. As one writer says, they are the people who are forever drawing the circle of the acceptable smaller and smaller 
Their consciences are always being offended by some new thing. And Paul is saying that these very people who are so finicky about being defiled by unclean foods are actually already defiled on the inside. In fact, he says both their mind and their conscience are defiled and therefore unclean. And their obsession with the uncleanness of foods is in itself a manifestation of their own defilement that they're now projecting onto other things. Imagine coming across someone who has just waded through a septic tank. They have filthy muck covering them from head to toe, leaving a trail of filth and stench wherever they walk. And imagine that this individual is wearing eyeglasses that also have filthy muck all over them. And imagine that you try to hand this individual a clean water bottle to drink, and this person looks at that bottle of water through their filthy glasses, and they say, oh no, that bottle looks filthy to me. I dare not touch it, lest it make me dirty. As crazy as that analogy sounds, that's the way Paul would say it is with these false teachers. They're already defiled in the worst of ways, yet even the healthy teaching, hygienic sound doctrine, even the healthy teaching, the truth is not clean to them, but is treated as unclean. And in addition to viewing the truth as unclean, they also look at various kinds of foods as unclean, which they must avoid in order to keep themselves from being defiled, supposedly. And in the process, they show what a fragile thing their purity is, right? Think about it. If someone's purity can be ruined by eating a particular food, then their purity isn't really all that impressive after all, right? I mean, if your purity is so fragile and vulnerable that it can be ruined by taking a bite of a particular kind of food, then no one should be interested in whatever version of purity you claim to have anyway. In verse 16, Paul further describes these teachers of error who worry about the defilements of food. And he says in verse 16, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Notice how Paul describes these people. First of all, these people profess to know God. They profess to know the truth about God and profess to have a relationship with him. They make this profession with their mouths, but Paul says by their deeds, they deny him. And the deeds that Paul has in mind are their deeds of abstinence, and their deeds of teaching others that they must abstain from certain foods together with them in order to be clean before God. By such deeds, Paul would say they are denying Christ and denying the truth taught by Christ and his apostles. Namely, they are denying the sufficiency of Christ in his ability to make a person pure before God. And because of their denial of Christ, because of their unbelief in Jesus in this way, Paul says they are being detestable. 
literally, they are an abomination, Paul is saying. This Greek word that is translated detestable is the very word that the Greek Septuagint uses to translate the Hebrew word for abomination in multiple places throughout the Old Testament, including unclean foods in the Old Testament. And Paul is using this word to describe these teachers of error on the island of Crete. They themselves are detestable abominations to God. That's the worst thing Paul could have called them. Paul also describes such people as disobedient and worthless for any good deed. They're just like the Cretans, Paul would say. They're worthless for any good deed that is truly pleasing to God, and they will forever be so until they lay all of this stuff aside and put their trust in Christ alone for their salvation and be rendered pure and clean through him. Notice the terminology that Paul is willing to use in this passage as he speaks about these false teachers. Such language is the language of sharp reproof. Paul doesn't describe these people as honestly mistaken. He doesn't describe them as people who are sincerely following their own truth. He doesn't describe them as people who are worshiping the same God as we worship. Paul doesn't say, well, I'll leave it to God to judge them and I'll just stay positive in my preaching. No, Paul points to these people and describes them as detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. And in speaking this way, Paul is showing Titus how to speak about them as well. We're going to stop here for today, uh, but I just want to take a few minutes to bring closure to a couple observations that we can make. First of all, Jesus can make you clean. Um, I'm here to tell you this morning that if you want to be pure before God, abstaining from certain foods is not going to help you. You can be the most vegan person on the planet, and that will not make you righteous before God. You can abstain from every non-organic GMO product on the market today, and it will not make you one whit more righteous before God. In fact, apart from Jesus Christ, all your righteousness will be as filthy rags, and you will be deemed, if you don't believe in Christ, you will be deemed an abomination by God on Judgment Day. That's the teaching of the New Testament. In Revelation 21, verse 8, we're told that those who do not believe in Christ will be damned to the lake of fire, where the text says, where the unbelieving and abominable will be cast. And the word translated abominable in Revelation 21.8 is the same word that is translated as detestable in Titus chapter 1. This is because your greatest problem to fear is not unclean foods. It's your sin. The greatest thing for you to fear is not the coronavirus that can come into you from the outside. It's sin that has already gotten into you. The coronavirus may infect a few million people and cost some of them their lives, but the Bible tells us that every person on the planet has already tested positive for sin. 
And the Bible tells us that this condition is 100% fatal. Imagine that news being blared across our news stations tonight. If people really believe this, how would they respond? It's amazing to me that people will panic and they'll scarf up every available bottle of Purell hand sanitizer that they can find, yet think nothing of the blood of Christ, which is the only thing that can cleanse them from their sin. And the blood of Christ will never run out. It will never run dry. It will never lose its power. It will never be unavailable to any sinner who repents of their sins and believes in Jesus. Sin is our greatest problem, and the only solution is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is so pure that he could declare all foods clean with just a spoken word in Mark chapter 7. He is so pure that he could touch unclean lepers and heal them and make them clean instantly. He is so pure that he could speak to his disciples in John chapter 15 and then say to them in verse 3, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. If you believe in Jesus and call upon his name, he will touch you and make you pure before God. He will take his blood and cleanse your conscience, and he will make you eternally clean. Though your sins right now be as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. And when Jesus, through his blood, makes you clean, there is no food on the planet that can ever make you unclean again. There's something else to notice in our passage today that might be easy for us to miss. It's utterly fascinating to me that Paul refers to these persnickety Judaizers as gluttons. That's the last thing that they would have ever thought that anyone would call them. In fact, I can imagine them hearing Paul call them lazy gluttons and protest and say, Paul, you can't call us gluttons. We're the ones who abstain from foods and try to get others to abstain with us. Yet Paul lumps them into the same category as the lazy gluttons who populated the island of Crete. And why would he do that? Why would he lump these abstainers from foods together with gluttons? Because in Paul's mind, Gluttony is not simply an overconsumption of food. In Paul's mind, gluttony is an overattention given to food in whatever form that overattention may take. As one writer says, to be a glutton isn't simply to be driven to overeating, but to make one's stomach one's God, and there are a number of ways of doing so. In fact, in the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis says that a person is guilty of gluttony essentially when he allows the devil to use his belly and palate to produce peevishness, impatience, uncharitableness, and self-concern. And you see such things just as much in people who are over abstainers from food as you see it in those who are over-consumers of food. 
Please don't get me wrong. It is good to be concerned about the food that we eat and to make wise choices regarding the foods that we eat, but we should be careful that we do not make a bigger deal out of food than we do of Jesus Christ. And we must be very careful not to legislate eating regulations on people above and beyond what the scripture reveals. We must also be careful to never think that food or the lack thereof commends us to God in any way. To believe that on any level is to diminish the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in our lives. Because only Christ can commend us to God. Only Christ can make us pure before God with a purity that is so powerful that no food could ever defile it. So let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. You may not be able to find any bottles of Purell at a store near you, but you do have Jesus if you're a Christian. And he can keep you pure in a way that really matters. Keep your eyes on him. And also, while you're at it, pray for God to give us elders here at Cornerstone who will hold fast to the faithful word of Christ and who will refute the lies of those who would seek to point you away from Christ. Elders who will always seek to exhort you with teaching about Christ, teaching that makes you healthy and whole. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and for what this passage of Scripture reveals to us. We praise your name for the sufficiency of Jesus Christ who takes us 100% of the way to God and who makes us pure and clean before you, Lord. There is nothing that needs to be added to Jesus to make us complete before you and clean before you. Yet we know, Lord, that there is the temptation in all of our hearts to look away from Christ and to trust in other things. Maybe to put some of our trust in Christ, but then to also deposit some of our trust in other things to make us truly clean and whole before you. Lord, we ask that you would show us the full, beautiful sufficiency of Christ, that everything else would pale in comparison, and that we would turn our eyes from all other things and fix our eyes solely upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, and the one who truly makes us whole and makes us clean. Lord, these are interesting times in which we live. I know there are many in our church body who are hurting right now and who are fearful right now. Some in our church body have already begun to be profoundly impacted by all that is transpiring with the coronavirus and the response to that. And we pray, Lord, that your peace would be upon all of the people of this church. Help us to serve one another well during this time. We also know, Lord, that there are many in our society today and in our neighborhoods 
who are fearful, who are worried, and many of them are asking deep questions in the quietness of their hearts, questions of life and death and eternity and how they can be made right with God. And there will be plenty to speak into them and to direct them to ways to God that are apart from Christ that will never successfully lead them to God. We ask that you would help us during this time to speak the truth of our all-sufficient Savior, Jesus Christ, to those who are asking these questions, that they would hear the good news of salvation through Jesus and that they would, even during this time of great upheaval and fear, be brought to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. If there's any within the sound of my voice who is feeling your Holy Spirit drawing them to yourself, I pray that you would empower them to respond and look to Jesus and live through him. And for those of us who do believe in Jesus, Lord, use us. And may we, through the words that we speak and the deeds that we do, show forth the beauty of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen.